1: Hello, and welcome to the Drabblecast Christmas Special, episode 307. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Well, it's Christmas time, and here at the Drabblecast we celebrate Christmas, not because we're aligned with any particular race, religion, or reindeer, but because we're all about the strangeness here. And Krampus knows it doesn't get much stranger than all the things that make up Christmas flying deer that pull a sleigh through the sky, holding a fat old white guy who, when not wearing his big red hat as the moral arbiter of all good and evil in the world, finds himself breaking and entering into people's homes to eat their snacks and fill one of their socks with candy or unrefined fossil fuel. At the same time, we celebrate the birth of Jesus, the most important half-man, half-God since Kevin Sorbo, who's remembered for his teachings of peace and love when clearly he could have been harnessing his God powers to shoot fireballs from his hands. In America, we have Frosty, Rudolph, Santa, and yeah, that's all weird for sure, but the strangeness buck doesn't stop there, my friends. We bring you Drabble News. The country of Iceland is just as bizarre as you'd expect a place that cranks out a Bjork to be. And during Christmas, this little island nation really steps up the weirdness. They don't have just one Santa, they have 13, and they're actually far more like weird, aborted attempts at cloning Santa found sickly and twitching in the sterile basement of some insidious, dimly-lit, top-secret research facility. Having originally descended from trolls in Icelandic folklore, the 13 have been spliced with Santa DNA by what I can only imagine must be the same evil scientist that created Bjork with the unholy merging of Gelfling and Bass. They're called the Yule Lads, and when they're not chained in the basement on a dirty mattress groaning for death like the horrible scientific abominations that they are, they're putting rewards or punishments into shoes placed by children on windowsills during the last 13 nights before Christmas Eve. Every night, one of the Yule Lads visits each child, leaving either a gift or a rotten potato, depending on the child's behavior throughout the year and, of course, the child's lawyer. And the thing is, folks, these aren't your typical run of the mill, cute little goofy seven dwarves here. Nor are the lads children, as the name suggests. They look like crazy eyed homeless people with a penchant for sex crimes. Ho oh, ho, this one's definitely getting the old potato. Eef. I'm sure Icelandic children just can't wait for the holidays each year with lovable characters like Spoon Licker, Pot Scraper, Door Sniffer and Sheep clod, Stubby and Yogurt Gobbler and Door Slammer and Bowl Lick, Candle Stealer and Gawk Gully, Sausage Sticker and Window Peeper, and of course, who could forget everyone's favorite, Meat Hook. <laughs> Real names, folks. <laughs> Imagine you get a special... <laughs> meat hook. <laughs> Imagine you get, <laughs> you get a special gift from each one of them for 13 straight nights. It's like Hanukkah, but with a little creepy rape innuendo thrown in for good measure. Oh, and it gets better, folks. The Yule Lads, who I'll refer to from here on out as the Thirteen, because Yule Lads just doesn't have that sinister ring of science gone horribly, horribly wrong to it, have a pet... The Yule Cat. His job is, of course, to devour the children who didn't put on new clothes for Christmas. An apex predator that devours the poor? I can't believe America didn't invent this one. But the fun doesn't stop there, kids. Oh no. Each year, the 13 invite children around the world to join them in their annual, honest-to-goodness, Yule bath. Yes, the Yule lads just love taking baths with other people. Children, particularly. (laughs) What's that, kids? You don't want to get in the bathtub with spoon liquor? (laughs) Gee, I hope that Yule Cat doesn't find out. (laughs) That would make Yule Cat very upset. And when Yule Cat gets upset, Yule Cat finds solace in food. It's called stress eating, Timmy. Now why don't you get in here and let me soap up your back? (laughs) God, I don't know what's with me today. door sniffer pot scraper and stubby window peeper and sausage sweeper and bowl lick gawk gully what do you Are it be too late All of the other Yule lads Laughed at how his club foot dragged They never let poor Meat Hook Join in any Yule time bats. Then one foggy Christmas Eve Yule cat came to say Hunchback back with your hook for meat, Bring me back a child to eat. Then all the other Yule lads Would together bathe and sing, Break into children's houses And put potatoes in their things. Well, we've got a story we think you're going to enjoy this week, also dealing with some of the less, shall we say, chestnut-roasting, sugar-plum feel-goodery of the season. But first, a 100-word story. Our Drabble this week is called Stay Warm This Christmas by Larry Hinkle. Larry Hinkle's an advertising copywriter living with his wife, two dogs, and a cat in the suburbs of Denver, Colorado. His work's been published in Suspense Magazine, Cemetery Moon, and Sanitarium Magazine. He loves beer, zombies, stand-up comedy, cynicism, and smart advertising. He hates pretty much everything else. His naughty list was growing longer every year. His statisticians calculated in 20 years there'd be no point in even keeping a list, let alone checking it twice. He was okay with that. Since the economy had switched from mining to fracking, he'd been stockpiling as much coal as he could. Today, he had enough lumps to fill everyone's stocking a thousand times over. But why give it away, when it'd be so much more fun to watch it burn? People didn't believe in Santa Claus anymore. They didn't believe in global warming, either. All of that was about to change. Ah, gives you a warm, fuzzy feeling, doesn't it? At least I think that's what's causing it. This week's feature story is Unbelief by Michael Marshall Smith. Michael Marshall Smith is a best-selling novelist and screenwriter. His first novel, Only Forward, won the August Derelith and Philip K. Dick Awards. Spares and One of Us were optioned for a film by DreamWorks and Warner Brothers, and the Men trilogy, The Straw Men, The Lonely Dead, and Blood of Angels were international bestsellers. His most recent novels are The Intruders, Bad Things, and Killer Move. He's a four-time winner of the BFS Award for Short Fiction, and his stories are collected in two volumes, What You Make, of it, and More Tomorrow and Other Stories, which won the International Horror Guild Award. He lives in Santa Cruz, California with his wife and son. So pour some more rum into that eggnog and relax. Without further ado, we bring you Unbelief by Michael Marshall Smith. It happened in Bryant Park, a little after six o'clock in the evening. He was sitting by himself in lamp shadow amongst the trees at one of the rickety green metal tables along the north side, close to where the Barnes & Noble library area is during the day. He was warmly dressed in nondescript casual clothing and sipping from a Starbucks in a seasonally red cup, acquired from the outlet on the corner of 6th, right opposite one of the entrances to the park. He queued just like any normal person would. Watching through the window, you'd have no idea of who he was, or the power he wielded over this and other neighborhoods. He had done exactly the same on the preceding two evenings. I'd followed him down from Times Square both times, watched him buy the same drink from the same place, and then spend half an hour sitting in the same chair, or, near enough, watching the world go by. Evidently, as I'd been assured, it was what this man always did at this time of the day, at this time of year. Habit and ritual are some of our greatest comforts, but they're a gift to people like me. He might as well have tied himself up with a bow. On the previous occasions I had merely observed, logged his actions, and walked on by. The thing had been booked for a specific date, for reasons I neither knew nor cared about. That day had come, and so I entered the park by the next entrance, by the restrooms, strolling in casually and without evident intent. I paused for a moment on the steps. He didn't appear to be there with protection. "'There were other people sparsely spread over the park, "'perched at tables or walking in the very last of the twilight.' but there was no indication that they were anything more than standard-issue New Yorkers, taking a little time before battling the subway or bridges, tunnels or airports, heading home to their families or friends or real partners for the holidays, grabbing a last few seconds' blessed solitude, an unwitnessed cigarette or an illicit kiss and a promise not to forget, before entering a day or two of enforced incarceration with the people who populated their real lives. Their presence in the park did not concern me. They were either absorbed in their companions or in something within themselves, and none would notice me until it was too late. I've done harder jobs under more difficult conditions. I could have just taken the shot from 20 feet away, kept on walking, but I found I didn't want it to happen like that. Not with this guy. He deserved less. I watched him covertly as I approached his position. He appeared relaxed, at ease, as if savoring his own few private moments of peace before tackling some great enterprise. I knew what he thought that was going to be. I also knew it wasn't going to happen. There was an empty chair on the other side of his table. I sat down on it. He ignored me for a couple minutes, peering in a vaguely benign way at the skeletal branches of the tall trees that stand all around the park's central grassy area, at them or perhaps at the buildings around the square revealed by the season's dearth of leaves. Being able to see these monoliths makes the park seem both bigger and yet more intimate, stripped, defenseless. Hello, Kane," he finally said. I'd never actually seen him before, not in the flesh at least, only in pictures, so I have no idea how he'd manage to make me straight away. I guess it's his job to know things about people. You don't seem surprised, I said. He glanced at me finally, then away again, seemingly to watch a young couple perched at a table twenty yards up the path. They were bundled up in thick coats and scarves and necking with cautious optimism. After a few minutes, they separated, tentatively smiling, still with their arms around each other's shoulders, and turned to look at the lights strung in the trees, to listen to the sounds of cars honking, to savor being where they were. A recent liaison, no doubt, the legacy of an office party, perhaps, destined to be a source of embarrassed silences in the office by Valentine's Day. Either that, or a pregnancy, and marriage, and all the silences after that. I knew it could happen, the man said, taking off the lid of his coffee and peering inside, as if gauging how long he had left. I'm not surprised it's you sitting there. Oh yeah? Why is that? Accepting a job for this evening? That's cold. It takes a certain kind of person. Who else are they going to call? Is that supposed to be a compliment? You think if you butter me up then I won't do it? The man looked calmly at me through the steam of what smelt like a gingerbread latte. Oh, you'll do it. I have no doubt of that. I didn't like his tone, and I felt the thing start to encurl inside me. If you've ever tried to give up smoking, you'll have felt something like it. The sudden lurid desire to lay waste to the world, and everything in it starting right here, right now, and with the very person physically closest to you. I don't know what that thing is. It doesn't have a name. I just know it's there, and I feel it when it wakes. It has always been a very light sleeper. No, really, I said. Just because I live in a big house these days, and got a wife and a child, you think I can't do what I do. Oh, you've still got it. You'll always have it. Fucking right I will. And that's something to be proud of. He shook his head. Shame, if it is. You were a good kid. (laughs) Isn't everyone? No. Some people come out of the womb broken. You can nurture all you want. Sooner or later, they're going to pass the damage on. With you, it could have been different. That makes it worse, somehow. I am who I am. I am who I chose to be. Oh, really? Everyone in the neighborhood knows what kind of person your father was. My hands twitched involuntarily. He had no faith in anything, the man said. He was a hater and a herter. I remember him. I remember watching him when he was young, knowing how he'd grow up, either dead inside or affectionate in inappropriate ways. Maybe both. Am I right? If you'd like this to play out in a civilized fashion, I said, my voice tight, you want to drop this line of discussion. Oh, forgive me, but you've come to kill me here, Kane. That's pretty personal too, wouldn't you say? I knew I should get on with it, but I was also aware that this was the biggest job of my career, and when it was done, it would be over. I was also simply curious. What the fuck makes you think you're better than me, I said. What you do isn't so different. <laughs> you really think so? You put yourself in a position of power, made it so you get to choose who gets what, who prospers, who gets nothing. And then you point the finger and lives get fucked up forever. Same as me. I don't see it that way. He looked into his cup again. The habit was beginning to get on my nerves. Yeah, drink it up, I said. Time's running out. One question. How'd I find you? He nodded. Well, people talk. My people? I shook my head irritably. The truth was, his own soldiers had held the line. I'd tracked down a couple of them, one slurping foe in a noodle bar under a bridge in Queens, the other sleeping in a tree deep in Central Park, and leaned on them hard, to the point where one of them would not be working for him or anyone else ever again. Both had merely looked up at me with their cold, strange eyes and waited for whatever I was going to do. It was not they who told me to go and stand in Times Square at the end of any December afternoon, waiting there until this man appeared, arriving there from directions unknown. So, who then? It's late for you to be taking names, I said with some satisfaction. That's all over now. He smiled again, but more coldly, and I saw something in his face that had not been there before, not on the surface at least the steady calm of a man who was used to making judgment calls, decisions upon which the lives of others had hung, a man who measured and who was now about to pay the price at the behest of people who had fallen on the wrong side of the line he'd believed it was his God-given right to draw. You think you're this big, bountiful guy, I said. Everybody's old man, but some understand the real truth. They realized it's all bullshit, Have I not made my rules clear? Have I not looked out for the people who deserved it? Only to make them do what you want. And what do you want? Why are you really here tonight, (laughs) Cain? Someone paid me to be. More than one, in fact. A syndicate. People saying that enough is enough. Getting back for what you did to them. I know about that, he interrupted, as if bored. I could even guess who those people are. But I asked why you're here. For the money? <sighs> no, otherwise you'd have done it from ten yards away and be on your merry way home by now. So you tell me if you're so fucking wise. Oh, it's personal, he said, and that's a mistake, Kane. You've made a good living out of what you do and have something of a life. On your terms, that's because you've merely been for hire, but you want this one for yourself. Admit it, you hate me on your own account. This man was smart enough to know a lie when he heard it, so I said nothing. Why, Kane? Did something happen some night where there was snow on the ground outside and everything should have been carols and fairy lights? Did your presence come with conditions or costs? Presents that came due in the middle of the night when Mom was asleep? That's enough. How many people have you killed, Kane? Can you even remember? I remember, I said, though I could not. When you let it get personal, the costs become personal, too. You're opening your own heart here. Are you sure you want to do that? Oh, I'd do it for free, for the bullshit that you are and have always been. Disbelief is easy, Kane. It's faith that takes courage and character. You're out of time, I said. He sighed. Then he tipped the cup, drained the last of his coffee, and set it down on the table between us. I'm done, he said. In the fifteen minutes we'd been talking, nearly half the people had left the park. The necking couple had been amongst them, departing hand in hand. The nearest person was now about sixty yards away. I stood up, reached my hand in my jacket. Anything you want to say, I asked, looking down at his mild, rosy face. People do, sometimes. Not to you, he said. I pulled out the gun and placed the silenced end in the middle of his forehead. He didn't try to move. I took hold of his right shoulder with my other hand and pulled the trigger once. With all the traffic around the square, I barely even heard the sound. His head jerked back. I let go of his shoulder and he sagged slowly around the waist until the weight of his big barrel chest pulled his body down off the chair to slump heavily onto the path, face first. A portion of the back of his head was gone, but his eyes were still open, his beard scratched against the pavement as he tried to say something. After a couple of times I realized it was not words he was forcing out, but a series of sounds. I put the barrel to his temple and pulled the trigger again. A portion of the opposite temple splattered out on the stones. Yet he still was trying to push out those three short syllables, each the same. I pulled the trigger a final time, and he was quiet. I bent down close to make sure and to whisper in the remains of his ear. Check it twice, right asshole. Then I walked out of the park. A few blocks away, I found a cab and started the long, slow journey home to New Jersey. I woke early the next morning, like most fathers, to the sound of my son hurrying past our bedroom down the stairs, on his way to the fireplace, no doubt. Yeah, good luck with that, I thought, though I knew his stocking would be full nonetheless. A few minutes later, Lauren levered herself into sitting position. She pulled on her robe and went to the window, yanking aside the drapes. She smiled at something she saw out there, then turned and quickly left the room. By the time I got my own robe on and gone down to the kitchen to make coffee, I knew what she'd seen through the window. It had snowed overnight, covering the yard and hanging off the trees, the whole nine yards of winter wonderland dressing. Probably I would have to help build a snowman later, whether I felt like it or not. In the living room, my wife and child were sitting together Indian-style in the middle of the floor, cooing over the stockings they'd already taken down. Candy, little gifts, pieces of junk that were supposed to mean something just because they'd been found in a sock. I noticed that the cookie left on the table near the hearth had a large bite taken out of it. Lauren had always been good with details. "'Happy Christmas, guys,' I said, but neither of them seemed to hear. I stepped around them and went to the fireplace. I took down the remaining stocking. I knew something was different before it was even in my hand. It was empty. "'Lauren?' She looked up at me. "'Ho, ho, ho,' she said. There was nothing in her face. Then she smiled, briefly, before going back to chattering with our son, watching for the third or fifth time as he excitedly repacked and then unpacked his stocking. Her smile went straight through me. But then, they always have. I left the stocking on the arm of one of the chairs and walked out into the kitchen. I opened the back door and went to stand outside in the snow. It was very quiet, and it was nothing but cold. And that was our story. Hope you enjoyed. Admit it, there's enough good cheer and merriment going around this time of the year. You need a healthy dose of dark like an adolescent needs his Yule bath. That was also the last story of 2013, folks, but have no fear. If you're a Drabblecast b side subscriber, you've got two more fun stories coming at you this week. I think you're going to enjoy them. Drabblecast B-Sides is, of course, our premium content feed, available to listeners who generously support the Drabblecast at the $10 a month level. Consider becoming one of those generous donors this holiday season. You can find support options off our website, drapplecast.org. And no worries. For you regular folks out there free freeloading, we've got a great story that we commissioned specifically for New Year's by author and Drupalcast favorite Tim Pratt. Look for that in your feeds soon. Alrighty, let's move on to our 100-character story winner this week by Varda, sweeping our last TwitFic contest this year with this one. Bigger stocking, more candy, thought Tim. He didn't get any candy, but everyone agreed the severed foot fit perfectly. One hundred characters, not counting spaces, we call them Twabbles and post the winner of our little contest each week on our Twitter feed, at the Drabblecast. Try writing one yourself. You can find the contest in the TwitFix section of our forums, at forums.drabblecast.org. Alright folks, everyone have a meowry Christmas, and try not to stress eat shoe potatoes too much. Remember the Drabblecast uses a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Blog about us, write us a review on iTunes, tell a friend, spread the weird. Special thanks to our awesome episode artist this week, Oscar Kunik. Oscar lives in Poland and makes digital art in his spare time. He loves people who share their work on the internet for free. That's a great thing to love, Oscar. We appreciate your contribution to the show. Our program this week was brought to you by Managing Editor Nikki Drayden, our Submissions Editor Nathan Lee, our Art Director Bo Kyer, with additional help from Tom Baker, David Steffen, and David Carvin. We'll see you next year, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman reminding you to get in here and let me soap up your back. Away in our basement Locked deep in the earth The thirteen in darkness Lay shackled since birth A birth quite unnatural If birth it be called In tanks from the ceiling And tubes from the wall As footsteps approach them, the 13 awake. The click of a padlock, the echo it it makes. They're blinded by strange light, they drop to the floor. But with door sniffers help sniff their way to the door. They'll come through your window and stand in your room Good children, bad children, they all get the same Then it's back to the basement from whence they came gate Like a pedophile, and if you ever saw it, saw it, chances are it'd be too late. Like Katrina relief, all of the other you'll last, you'll last how his club foot dragged Like some assholes They never let poor Meat Hook Meat Hook Join in any Yule Time baths Bath Monopoly Then one foggy Christmas Eve Yule Cat came to say Meowry Christmas Hunch back with your hook for meat Bring me back a child to eat then all the other Yule lads, Yule lads would together bathe and sing, like tradition. break into children's houses, and put potatoes in their things, like their footwear. Oh, this one's definitely getting the old potato.